ready to receive. Anybody ready to get into God's word this morning? Come on, yeah, see, we're already starting out good if that's the response. All right, well, let's pray over the word today and then let's get into it, shall we? Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the moments that we share together. And I pray this morning, as I often do, would you let, would you anoint me? to be your mouthpiece to your people. God, your word is already anointed, but Lord, I never want to communicate anything that is of my own ideas or opinions. I only ever want to communicate your word and your heart, for those are the only things that we can trust, for the only things that do not change in our lives. So God, we ask, would you minister to us? Would you speak to us in a way that only you can? God, would you encourage us, challenge us, equip us, strengthen us today in your word? We ask all of these things in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. 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 You know, it was roughly, I don't know, eight, maybe nine years ago now, I um, have always had a bit of a difficulty breathing. My, when I was born, I was born um, a month premature. Now, my mom had gestational di- diabetes, so I was eight and a half pounds, y'all, a month premature. I was the gorilla child in the NICU, right? You know, I was the one that didn't fit all these little babies or whatnot, and then there was just this big blue bubble of I was because I, I actually was born with um, underdeveloped lungs. I was, my, the first six weeks of my life were spent in the hospital, hooked up to tubes and machines. Matter of fact, when I was born, the, the, the delivering doctor said to my mom, hey, as soon as your son is born, we're going to put him in your hands as quickly as possible because we don't think he's going to live longer than 24 hours. So we want you to get as much time as possible as you can with your child. And so just a kind of a rough, rocky start to life, if you will. But because of some complications from the time I was born, I've always been asthmatic. Anytime, if I'm ever sick, it's going to attack my lungs, not just seasonally, but just anytime I catch anything, I, f- I swear I could get a hangnail and all of a sudden it's hard to breathe. You know what I mean? Like it's kind of one of those things. And it was roughly about nine years ago, I was having this incessant need to clear my throat. At first I thought it was just seasonal allergies, but quickly I realized, no, there's something deeper going on. Now, I, went, I had that joyous experience of going to an ENT where they pull out that little tube thingy that's about three feet long, and they shove it through your nostril and all the way down, then they tickle your belly for a minute and then pull it all the way back out. They're like, sir, we can only offer you one of two options. Option number one is we can start giving you allergy shots in hopes that it will kind of thin out whatever is going on inside of your throat and troubling your air passage. Or we can do sinus surgery. Well, I raised my hand. I said, I'll take surgery. I'll just take the most drastic thing possible if it can get through get rid of this incessant need to clear my throat. And they said, well, Mr. Rolls, we have to tell you that there's no guarantee that the procedure we're about to do on you is going to 100% resolve the problem. I said, I'll take my chances. That's what insurance is for, right? You know, I'll just take my chances. Just hook me up for the surgery. But if you know anything about sinus surgery, what they do is they kind of go in uh, through your nostrils, right? And your sinus cavity kind of looks like this. And when maybe you have a whole bunch of sinus infections, things along those lines, it tends to swell up and kind of enclosed. So what they do in a sinus surgery is they essentially take a mini drill and they drill a hole in your sinus cavity. Oh, yeah. Have you eaten breakfast yet? Okay. And so, and they open it as wide as possible, hoping that that will help with the flow of all the fun things that happen in this region of your body. So I remember going to the area and they said, listen, Mr. Rose, we're going to put you obviously underneath anesthesia. You're going to be knocked out. We're going to take you back. We're going to do the procedure. It's really routine, very basic. Recovery time is going to be roughly about a week. Do you have somebody who can take care of you? I was newly married. I said, yes, my mother. (laughs) And so um, my mom can take care of me. Uh, And so I went and moved back in with mom uh, for a little while. She took care of me. And they said, listen, it's going to be pretty straightforward. You're going to come out, you know, you're a little groggy out of anesthesia, but you'll be okay. I go back to the, the surgery. They asked me to count back to 10. I don't even think I got 10 out of my mouth before I was knocked out. 
When they rolled me back into the recovery room and I was coming out of anesthesia, my ears turned on before my eyes did. I don't know if you've ever been under general anesthesia before and kind of you start hearing things at times before you can regain your sight. So I open up my eyes and I quickly realize, y'all, I can't see. Now, doctor did not mention anything and all of his things to expect in coming out of anesthesia about the lack of sight. Now, naturally, as somebody who struggles to breathe, anytime one of my senses is overloaded, my body goes into a panic. And so I open my eyes, and then I blink my eyes, and then, I, and then I'm holding my eyeballs open, and y'all, homie can't see. I can't see nothing, right? And so all I know is there's commotion going on. I can hear nurses and doctors in the office, and I go, hey, I can't see. Hey, I can't see. Hey! <laughs> I can't see, you know, like I'm just screaming at anything that moves. Finally, nobody's paying me attention. They're just all like, right, you know, they're ignoring me. And I grab the silhouette that I can kind of make out to the right of me by the arm, pull them close to my face, and I say, go find my wife. In which Lindsay replied, I am your wife, right? You know, all of a sudden, she's thinking now they've erased my memory. We just got married. I have no idea who she is, right, you know? And she's like, it is me, right? Marriage issues right from the jump, y'all. It's just been a rocky road. But instantly, what I realized is it's kind of one of those things where you don't realize how much you depend on sight until your sight is taken away from you. It's not really until you, you lose vision that you see just how much vision is is doing for you, the confidence that it's putting on the inside of you. And it's a scary place when we lose our vision because life seems to be spinning out of control. And as I've been praying over these last several weeks in the month of October, and believe it or not, I pray in the other 11 months as well, and even previous to that, I've realized that if there's one thing, if you will, we've talked a lot about what this season has brought on to the church. We've talked a lot about how this year has reshaped our world. It's reshaped society. It's reshaped culture, right? I, if I have to hear unprecedented one more time, I'm going to slap somebody. You know, we're just in unprecedented days. Well, give me some precedented days, okay? Like, that's what I'm ready for. And, and when I begin to pray, when I begin to think, when I begin to think of how I've been challenged and how I've been attacked in this season, I'm sure it's no different than you that I realize that all of a sudden my vision that used to be crystal clear has maybe gotten blurry or Maybe I can't see anything at all. I don't know if you kind of feel that way where maybe you walked into a new decade and a new year. If you're a part of our regular church family, you'll know that we walked into 2020 going, you know, Moses, my servant is dead and be bold and courageous. And we were slapping high fives and, you know, seeing bodies get up. You know, we we're doing all the crazy stuff. And then it was all of a sudden life came to a screeching halt. And I've realized that if the devil can't destroy you, he will just want to discourage you. If he can't completely stop you, he'll want to discourage you. And there's nothing more discouraging than having this moment in your life where you go, am I really moving towards anything? Have you asked yourself maybe even just this year of are you contributing to something that matters? Maybe have this year, have you asked questions that, questioned things that you wouldn't normally question, made decisions that were kind of not really full of confidence, find yourself being timid in areas that you used to be so certain of? This is what I I think is attacking uh, so many of us as I began to pray, going, God, don't show me the symptoms of what's going on. What's the sickness? What's the root, if you will, of so much of the chaos that I'm seeing, so much of the turmoil that I'm feeling, so much of the pain that I'm feeling. And he brought me to a passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 27. If you got your Bibles, go there with me. If not, no worries. Just tune your eyelids to the screen. And Genesis chapter 27, very familiar portion of scripture, but I'm going to preach it to you today through a different lens. This story is the famous story of Jacob 
and Esau and the blessing that their son, that their, excuse me, father Isaac is about to hand down. And I've often heard this story taught, preached, and frankly read it through the lens of the sons. But today I think God wants to speak to us through the lens of Isaac, the dad. So just hang with me. We're going to read a whole lot of scripture this morning. Is that all right? Okay, we're losing people. All right, Genesis chapter 27, starting at verse 1, says this. One day when Isaac was old and turning blind, he was old and turning blind, he called for Esau, his older son, and he said, my son. Yes, father, Esau replied, I am an old man now. Now, what is it about old people that just want to tell you how old they are? You know what I mean? It's like, oh, you know, back in my day, well, I'm old. You know, I'm a lot older than you are. Yeah, we get it. You're old. Okay, so. He says, I'm an old man now, Isaac said, and I don't know when I may die. If you've got your Bibles or a device or whatnot and you have the ability to underline or highlight, underline or highlight that sentence. I don't know when I may die. I'm going to come back to that a little later. Verse 3, take your bow, this is Isaac speaking to Esau, and a quiver full of arrows and go out into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare my favorite dish and bring it here for me to eat. And then... I will pronounce the blessing that belongs to you, my firstborn son, before I die. Now let's stop there just for a moment. Let me give you a little context. Just a couple of chapters previous, we realize, we find out that the blessing that is normally meant for the firstborn son, who is Esau, no longer is Esau's to obtain, it's now Jacob's. Because there was an interaction that Jacob had with Esau, and Esau found himself famished, found himself physically debilitated and needed something to eat. And so Jacob, the trickster, his, his, his name, excuse me, literally means trickster, says, listen, you give me your birthright, I'll give you a bowl of soup, right? And in his natural self, he gave up the blessing of the firstborn son just to satisfy a natural craving. Now, this isn't, wasn't just understood between the brothers, but was understood through the family. Not only does Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, who we're about to meet in just a moment in this story, not only do they know about this exchange that took place, but when God, in Genesis chapter 25, speaks directly to Isaac and Rebecca, he says, your older son will serve your younger son. So God has said that there's an, actually an order that he's ordained. There's been an exchange as well, but Isaac is about to try to operate outside of what God has already said. It's important to know that. Verse 5, keep with me. It says, but Rebekah, Isaac's wife, overheard what Isaac had said to his son Esau. So when Esau left to hunt for the wild game, she said to her son Jacob, listen, I overheard your father say to Esau, bring me some wild game and prepare me a delicious meal. Then I will bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now, my son, listen to me. Do exactly as I tell you. And once again, Rebekah speaking to Jacob. Go out to the flocks, bring me two fine young goats, and I'll prepare your father's favorite dish. Then take the food to your father so he can eat it and bless you before he dies. Now let's pause just for a moment. How many of you know this is the picture of family dysfunction, right? You got a mama's boy, Jacob, him and his mom are devising a plan, a totally separate plan than what Isaac and Esau are doing. You may think that you've got problems at home, but this is really a house divided. Now let's just pause for a teaching moment just for a moment. How many of us are asking God to bless things outside of his nature? Scripture says this, that God commands a blessing when there is unity. 
Unity is what commands a blessing of God. And yet here in scripture, we see two people in a family causing division, but begging for God to bless what they have divided. Can I tell you something? God cannot bless or act outside of his nature. He cannot contradict himself. And so I wonder, just for a moment, just as a side note, of how many of us are operating outside of what God has asked, which is to come together and bring unity and begging God to bless it. Verse 11 says this. But look, Jacob replied to Rebekah, my brother Esau is a hairy man. Why has he got to do him like that? You know what I mean? Like, how would he like to be known as the hairy one, right? He said, Esau is a hairy man, and my skin is smooth. You know what I'm saying? The ladies love me. And so what if my father touches me? He'll see that I'm trying to trick him. And then he'll curse me instead of blessing me. Verse 13. But his mother replied, then, let the curse fall on me, my son, just do as I tell you. Go out and get the goats for me. So Jacob went out, got the young goats for his mother, Rebekah. And Rebekah took them and prepared a delicious meal just the way Isaac liked it. Then she looked at Esau's, she took, excuse me, Esau's favorite clothes, which were there in the house, gave them to her younger son, Jacob. She covered his arms and the smooth part of his neck <laughs> with the skin of the young goats. Then she gave Jacob the delicious meal, including freshly, freshly, there's the interpretation of tongues, baked bread. So Jacob took the food to his father. My father, he said. Yes, my son, Isaac answered, who are you, Esau or Jacob? And Jacob replied, it's Esau, your firstborn son. I've done as you've told me. Here is the wild game. Now sit up and eat it so that you can give me your blessing. Now let's pause just for a moment in this story. We find out at the very beginning of the story that Isaac what? Has gone blind. He has lost his vision. Now science would tell you that they say that if anybody is born blind, that actually their other senses, excuse me, become heightened. Right? All of their, their ability to hear, their ability to smell, their ability to taste, to touch, all of those senses heighten to compensate for the lack of a lost sense. And so here is Isaac who has lost his vision. And so the next thing he has to rely on is what he hears. Now watch this. But what he hears contradicts, we're about to find out, what he knows to be true. But because he's lost his vision, and because in a moment you're going to find that he brings in no accountability around him, he's getting ready to make a mistake based on what his feelings tell him. Verse 20 says this, Isaac asked, how did you find it? How did you find this meal so quickly? The Lord, your God, put it in my path. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come closer so I can touch you. So catch with me with the progression. Isaac has lost his vision. So now he has to rely on what he hears. Now what he hears contradicts what he knows to be true. Jacob comes in and says, it's me, dad, I'm Esau. But he sounds like Jacob. But because Isaac, he's a wise man. Isaac is older in years. you got to remember Isaac is the son of Abraham, whom God's blessing is upon. He's in that seed line of blessing to the nation of Israel. He's no fool. So he knows I can't see. What I hear doesn't match up with what I know to be true. So then he moves to the next sense, which is what he feels. He says, come closer so I can touch you and make sure that you really are Esau. So Jacob went closer to his father, and Isaac touched him. The voice is Jacob's. In other words, what I hear lines up with what I know, 
but what I feel contradicts it. But the hands are Esau's, Isaac said. But he did not recognize Jacob because Jacob's hands felt hairy just like Esau's. So Isaac prepared to bless Jacob. Now Isaac finds himself in the place that many of us are in the same scary place. Isaac has lost his vision. All of a sudden he can no longer see clearly. Therefore he operates in no confidence. The absence of vision is the present, sorry, is the presence of a lack of confidence. When my vision goes, my confidence goes with it. So he can no longer be confident in what he sees, so then he has to rely on his other senses. Then he hears something. He hears Jacob say it's Esau, but once again, it just doesn't line up. And then he finds himself in the place that many of us find ourselves in today because we're not seeing what God is seeing or, or doing in this time. We can't really trust what we hear because that just sounds scary. So then we find ourselves being led by our feelings. Isaac now, because of a loss of vision, is now getting ready to make a life-altering decision because he can't see right. He doesn't quite trust what he hears, so he makes the mistake of trying to trust what he feels. How many of you know you're in a scary place when you start doing things that just feel right, just feel good, allowing your feelings to just dictate, well, it just didn't, my feelings. Go with me. He says, once again, but are you really my son Esau? Yes, I am, Jacob said. Then Isaac said, he's still not convinced. Now, my son, bring me the wild game. Let me eat it, and I'll give you my blessing. So Jacob took the food to his father. Isaac ate it. He also drank the wine that Jacob served him. And then Isaac said to Jacob, please, come a little closer and kiss me, my son. So Jacob went over and kissed him. And when Isaac caught a smell of his clothes, we moved on to the next sense. He was finally convinced, and he blessed his son. He said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the outdoors, which the Lord has blessed. Isaac ultimately makes a life-altering decision, all because fundamentally he lost his vision. And when he lost his vision, he, he ended up reduced down so the only thing he felt that he could trust were his feelings. And when I look along the landscape of even my life, but the life of so many, I'm sure, of you in this room that I see nodding along, that you can relate to this story, relate kind of seeing where I'm going. When I'm, when I'm looking at just the landscape of society, when I, when I look at the terrifying landscape of social media, right, just like, Lord, if you want to take my vision, take that vision in Jesus' name. They're seeing there's a whole lot of people who are operating visionless. Therefore, they're not confident. Therefore, they're making life-altering decisions based on what they feel. Remember at the beginning of the story, I had you underline a very important sentence. Isaac said to Jacob, excuse me, said to Esau, hey, I've lost my vision. I'm getting old. And he says what? I don't know. Let me pull up the exact words because I want to make sure I get it right. I don't know when I may die. In other words, I feel as though my time is running out of this season, of this window of opportunity to bestow upon you. You want to know the crazy thing about Isaac's life? After this exchange, after he makes this decision that we just read about, Isaac goes on to live another 43 years. 
And how many of us right now are being fooled as though that time is running out on what God has asked you to do? And therefore, rather than gaining clear vision, clear sight, trusting in what you're hearing, the voice of God said, we're rushing decisions based on a timetable that God never set, but yet you feel very real. A loss of vision becomes the loss of our confidence. As I've been thinking about these times of prayer that we're in, and I'm sitting down with people that I'm catching up with. Matter of fact, two weeks ago, I, I, I just felt the Holy Spirit say, listen, I'm going to give you three pastors that you need to call and you need to meet with. So I called three different pastors, three different cities, three different states. I was able to talk with them on the phone. And almost all of them were completely discouraged. Almost all of them were talking about, you know, the pain that this season has brought. Man, our church is going through a, a, a division and a split right now because of gossip and stuff like that. And masks or no masks and, and all these things. And we've had small group leaders lead literally 50-person small groups away from our church because of their influence. And, and all of a sudden, like, I just don't know that I've got the vision to do this anymore. I don't know that I've got the courage to do this anymore. Pastors of large churches in major cities in America that are just in a moment of just venting to me, talking about, I just don't know how much longer I can keep going. And it was all fundamentally related to the fact that they've lost their vision. And they feel the temptation to make a long-term decision in a short-term season. And right now I'm wondering if you feel the pressure to make a long-term decision in a short-term season based on feelings that you feel, pressure that you feel, the observance of what other people are causing you to do, that kind of herd mentality, that sheep mentality of, well, I'm just following the, the person in front of me. Fundamentally, people talking about walking away from marriages, walking away from churches, walking away from businesses, walking away from relationships, all because of just the way that they feel. And ultimately, it's because I'm left with my feelings when I've lost my vision. You've heard me use this verse probably in seven different sermons already just in these last four months. I'm going to give it to you one more again. Proverbs 29, 18 in the message paraphrase says it this way. It says, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. And you've heard me say that word blessed in the original language has nothing to do with your possessions in material ways. That word blessed is to be content in your soul. To be content in your soul. How do I get contentment in my soul is when I tend to what God reveals. But if I'm not attending to the vision that God is giving me, I'm stumbling all over myself. You know, how funny is it that, have you ever been in your house at night? Everybody's like, yes, every night. Have you ever been in your house at night and the power goes out? And all of a sudden, your house is completely black. Now, isn't it funny that you've been living in that house for years? Years and years and years, you've, you've seen your kids grow up. You have set up all the furniture, the landscape of your home. You could do it blindfolded. But isn't it funny how as soon as the lights go out, we start walking like this? Feeling our way, how many steps to the coffee table, how many steps to the wall. Why? Because all of a sudden we've lost our vision. We're still standing presently in the middle of what is familiar, in the middle of what God has blessed us with, in the middle of what God has set up our family to. But the second the light goes out and I can't see, I'm moving with a timidity even though I'm in the place that God has called me. 
And it's when the light goes on that then I begin to move once again through my home, through the things that God has called me to with an area of confidence, with a level of confidence. So the question is, how do I bring back my vision? How do I turn the lights on again? How do I see once again what God is doing? I was so sure of it in January. I was so sure of it three years ago. I was so sure of it before the protests. I was so sure of it before the, all of the political things. I was so sure of it until so-and-so used that scripture out of context to lead people astray. I was so sure of it. How do I regain my vision so that I can get my confidence back? Because God isn't coming back for a timid, timid church, but rather a bold, a confident, a courageous church who believe that he is who that he says he is. Last two weeks, not even two weeks ago now, ten of us gathered together on a Thursday night in this room because only ten people showed up to the prayer meeting. And we had a family in our church who had a brother that had been missing for three and a half weeks, literally sobbing to me on the phone talking about, I can't find my brother, and at this point we just want closure. At this point, we just are hoping the police find his body. At this point, can you give us some, I just need to resolve this hurt in my heart. And 10 of us stood in this room on a Thursday night and said, God, you are the God of the impossible. And we are asking for heaven to intervene in an impossible scenario. Detectives are telling me that go ahead and get my heart ready. Other people are telling me, you know what, it's, you need to prepare yourself to never see your brother again. And then nothing happened. And then Sunday morning, last Sunday, we gathered in this room, just about 30 of us, 30 minutes before church started, so you know what, we're going to pray. And we just felt, you know what, God, today's going to be a day of a miracle. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know who it's going to happen for. And can I tell you something? We went through two services last Sunday, and there was no miracle. And I got in my bed late Sunday night, and I had to let my flesh show a little bit with God. I said, I was so confident this morning in prayer that you said today would be a day of a miracle. And I, I haven't heard of a single one. I didn't see anybody get healed in service this morning. Nobody got saved at a salvation altar call. So where's the miracle? And then I start rationalizing it to myself like we always do, right? It's like, well, you know, some miracles we won't know this side of heaven. Then we'll get to heaven and they'll be like, there was that day where I was sitting there and I said, Lord, if you love me, right? So I'm just like, Lord, maybe it's going to be one of those. Maybe just put a jewel in my crown for the future, right? That's what it's going to be. And can I tell you something? I woke up on Monday morning. I had a text message at 11.58 p.m., two minutes left in the day saying my brother who's been missing for three and a half weeks that we were sure would be found in a ditch somewhere has been found, he's alive, and he's getting treatment for what he needs right now. But if you were in this room on Thursday night, if you were in this room last Sunday morning, there wasn't an ounce of doubt in the room. But there was a confidence in calling on the God who we know still operates in the impossible. I'm ready for a church, I, I hope you are too, that isn't here just hoping that things are going to get better. They aren't just hoping that my family is reconciled. They isn't just hoping that our churches grow. They aren't just hoping that our businesses flourish. They aren't just hoping that our prodigal sons and daughters return home, but rather are moving with the assurance of who God is and calling on him in confidence. How do I get my confidence back? i got to get my vision back. You know, I remember, I, many of you know, because I've shared this off and on over the years, that my favorite job outside of ministry, outside of me coming on and pastoring vocationally or whatnot, was when I worked for Apple. I worked, I worked for Apple for about three years, and I'm telling you, the be best years 
Some of the best years of my life. It was so fun being there. I spent all of my paycheck on dumb things, right? So my wife's very thankful that we weren't there. Thankfully, they didn't have payroll deducts, but they had the next best thing, right? And so it was just dangerous, right? And uh, we won't bring up any of those stories because I don't need that kind of tension in my marriage. Okay, so, but for three years, I worked for Apple. And it was an amazing time. I loved it. And I remember several years ago when I was there, they, the technology started coming out. Do, do you remember when cars first started coming out with built-in GPS? And you were like, oh, that's for the rich people, <laughs> right? Like maybe one day I'll get a screen in my car and I'll have GPS. And that only lasted so long because you had to play subscription services and things along those lines. And, and then very quickly our GPSs, the GPS industry, if you will, got overhauled by the smartphone industry. Because Google Maps started coming out and TomTom, you remember all the TomTom apps and things along those lines, right? And Garmin and all these, they all came out with digital apps and they were realizing. And then the, the smartphone accessory guys realized, listen, we've got a major problem here. Because everybody's using their phones to get places, but their phones are sitting in their cup holders or they're sitting in their lap. And accidents are being caused because I've got a, um, I can hear the directions, but I need to see the directions. And so people are looking down, and if it wasn't texting and driving, it was like, I'm just trying to figure out where I need to make my turn. And accidents were taking place. And so there was this company by the name of Kinu. And Kinu had the first idea, we've got to figure out a way how to get not just the sound, but the directions in people's line of sight so they can continue to move forward with confidence. And they were the first company to, to make one of those uh, air um, air vent kind of clips that you could put your phone up there and what was that all in the design to do it was designed to keep people from crashing and they can move with a confidence on where they were going but they knew they had to put directions within their line of sight can I tell you something that God's promises for your life are not meant to be stowed away in a place that you can't see as you're leading your life but rather it is our responsibility to take the promises of God place them back in my line of sight so I can move with an assurance of where he's leading me but often when you talk about the promises of God, you go, hey, I'll be right back. Let me go get it. It's back here in a, in a bucket somewhere. And we're leaving our life in a way. I never realized how tall this was up here. I'm like, there are the people, right? I don't want to do that. I want to be where the people are, right? But at times we're stumbling over our life, not because God hasn't made us a promise, but because we've refused to put it in our line of sight. And God is saying it's time for us as Christians, it's time for us as a church, it's time for us who have any semblance of faith left to start putting God's word and God's promises back in our line of sight. That's why his word says his lamp, his word is a lamp unto my feet. It is a light unto my path. It, it reveals to me where I am, but it gives me the hope of where I'm going. Whew, this is good preaching. I'm going to buy my own CD when this is over. When vision comes back, confidence comes back back and timidity flees. A loss of vision breeds timidity. We know this. 2 Timothy 1 and 7 says this. God has not given me a spirit of fear and that's often where we stop. But he says it has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity but rather of power, of love and of a sound mind, of self-control, of an assurance. I know it looks bleak now but I know where I'm going. So here's the question. As I start one of my three closings, 
All right, you sold me. My vision is linked to my confidence. My confidence is linked to my vision. So the question is, how do I get my vision back? Maybe right now you're like, whew, you're right. You've, you've hit the nail on the head, Ryan. I, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't know really where I'm going. Every day is kind of Groundhog Day. It's just the same day over and over and over and over again. I'm, I've had these sobering moments. Of, am I even contributing to something that matters? Am I, am I giving myself to something that's going to live longer than me? I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with fulfillment. So how do I restore my vision? How do I get my vision back? I'll give you three very simple things in no particular order. The first one is to forgive. Everybody say forgive. forgive. Nothing will rob you faster of your vision than an offense that you haven't forgiven. You know a scripture that us preachers love to preach out of context? It's actually in Matthew chapter 18. Now you've heard me talk a lot about Matthew 18. It's been, I believe, a very prevalent scripture today in the day and age of offense and unforgiveness and things along those lines. But inside of Matthew 18, which is Jesus' great manifesto, if you will, of talking about how to deal when you're offended, is a scripture that a lot of pastors, myself included, have plucked out and used in a context that Jesus actually was never talking about. And it is when he began to give the illustration of the 99 and the 1. Now, oftentimes we hear, now, when a shepherd has the 99, won't he leave the, the 99 for the sake of the 1? And a lot of times we use that verse in the area of evangelism. Right? If there is one who is lost, then I should leave the 99 that are found and go see the one. Now that is admirable and that does line up with the nature of God. You can find other scriptures that would support that wave of thinking. But that's not at all the context in which Jesus used that illustration. Jesus used that illustration on how to deal with an offense. What was he saying? He says if you've got 100 friends and 99 of them you're good with but you've got one who you've offended or who has offended you, then your responsibility is to go and make every attempt to reconcile yourself to the one who has offended you or you have offended in hopes that that, 99, that one comes and rejoins the 99. It was all through. So listen, what Jesus is saying is, listen, an offense should be distracting to you. Jesus didn't say, ignore the one. Be offended over there. He says, no, 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 go in. Find the one, go and make every attempt to reconcile to the one. Now, granted, we know that reconciliation is a two-way street. But Jesus is saying your responsibility is to forgive. Regardless if an apology comes, regardless if they accept your apology, if that's the way that offense goes. But he says your responsibility is to go and try to reconcile the one to the 99. The one should distract you. The offense should be distracting. But many of us, rather than going and dealing with it, we sit there and go, hey, this person offended me. You see him over there all by themselves? And Jesus is giving the whole lens through an offense and a reconciliation. Read the whole chapter. I preached a whole message on it two years ago about this whole different variations that Jesus is talking about, how we reconcile ourselves in offense with one another. How do I restore my vision? I've got to forgive. Are you with me this morning? I'm almost done. Number two, no particular order, is we must fix our eyes. Fix our eyes. Set our eyes. My favorite passage of Scripture, if I had to pick one. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 says this. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, comma, that's an important comma, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. The writer of Hebrews is telling us, hey, 
there are things that will slow you down that may not be sin, but they are still a hindrance to what God is doing in your life. So he says, listen, be able to identify the weight, of course the sin that so easily trips you up. And let us run with endurance, the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes. Some of translations would say fixing your eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people, then you won't become weary and give up. The writer of Hebrews is sitting here saying, the way that you get through, the way that you endure, that word endure simply means this. Are you willing to stay committed, to stand in one place, no matter how hard or how difficult it may become? Right, of Hebrews is saying it's, not, it's one thing to run the race. It's another thing to have endurance. It's another thing to get past that wall. That's been one of the things I've, I've kind of been relearning, if you will, after years and years and years of not doing any sort of physical activity pretty much outside of my ch chasing my children, right? Which as, as a dad, you're like, I'm working out some calories, right? I'm chasing these kids, right? I've kind of gotten back into the gym. And I remember when I first got back, I'm like, I was done. Like 10 minutes, 15 minutes in, I'm like, all right, fellas, where's the hot tub? You know what I'm saying? Like, let's just, let's head there, right? And a after a, a staying with it, after a staying at it, right, um, then I I've realized what my, my endurance, I've gotten past that initial hurdle of wanting to quit. I've gotten past that initial hurdle of wanting to give up, to throw in the towel. But, I, but now I've got the endurance now to keep going. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, how do you develop endurance is you shake off every weight that slows you down. You, you lose yourself of every sin tripping you up. You set your gaze on Jesus. And when you begin to get discouraged, you think about everything that he's already endured for your sake and you keep going. That's what he's saying. Then Paul would say it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. He would say this. So we don't look at troubles we can see now. Ooh, some of y'all need to write this verse down. Put it on your refrigerator, on, on your mirror when you're getting ready in the morning. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze. We fix our eyes on things that cannot be seen. For the things, now some of y'all, this is just, you just need to let this minister to your spirit. For the things we see now will soon be gone. The things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. In other words, Paul is saying, how's your vision, not how's your sight? Many of you have probably heard the phrase that sight is what you see with your eyes open. Vision is what you see with your eyes closed. Do you have an ability to see beyond what is happening in the natural sense? I look at all these empty chairs that are in the room right now. And there's a part of me that goes, ah, I wish these seats were full. But my spirit says, no, I actually see these seats full. And as I'm beginning to preach, I know that I'm setting an atmosphere for that hurting mom, that widower, that teenager, that homosexual, that drug addict, whoever it is that finds themselves stumbling in here, needing some semblance of something that is real, something that is life-changing. I'm not just looking at you with my natural eyes, but I'm seeing vision of people coming to be set free, people coming to find Jesus. And so guess what? I would preach this way if there was nobody in the room. Because I'm not really preaching to you. I'm preaching to what God is showing me. And I'm preaching to you. You pretty. You real pretty. You're the only one that had the courage to sit on this front row right here. Because you know that I already smell bad. Okay. Setting our eyes on what we cannot see. And last but not least, man, come save the preacher. My second closing. How do I restore my vision? Well, first thing I got to do is forgive. Then I've got to fix my eyes and then number three I know you're expecting an F right here because every like really sophisticated preacher does all the same letter but no 
The third one is this, declare. Everybody say declare. Declare God's promises over my life. You know what I believe right now? This is going to ruffle some feathers, but here we go. I believe God's promises are in great danger right now. Let me tell you why. Recently, I was part of a conversation. It was myself, it was Pastor Jane, Pastor Nick. I can't remember who else was a part of it. It was several months ago. And we were talking about that feeling that we've all had before of getting called on last minute to have to preach. Maybe somebody woke up sick, not feeling well, was unable to do it. Or, or I remember when I was 19 years old, I was leading worship at this youth group over in, uh, in, in Dunwoody. And they were in between youth pastors. The senior pastor came to me and he says, Ryan, listen, I know, you're, I know your background and your parents are, your parents are heroes of mine, da da da, da. you do an incredible job leading worship. I want you to know that we, we've asked, we've booked about like nine guest speakers that are going to come in nine consecutive weeks while we're in this interview process of, um, of trying to find a new youth pastor. And so can you just do, do me a favor and just like when the guy, whoever gets there, you know, we'll send you his name and his picture. And I want you just to welcome him as he comes in and, and just make sure he needs to do anything. But I, I need you to run the service. I need you to do the welcome and the offering and the greeting team and the everything team or whatnot. So I was like, sure. And then he goes, and hey, just, just want to go ahead and throw this bit in there. On the off chance that one of the preachers doesn't show up, you're good to preach, right? Like you're totally good to do that. I was like, Sure. Can I tell y'all, seven out of nine preachers didn't show up. <laughs> and for seven different weeks, you know what I preached on? The promises of God. You know, every time I've been called on to preach last minute, if I feel like the tank's empty, if I don't have one just right and ready in the pocket, you know what I'm preaching on? The promises of God. And here's why I think the promises of God are in a dangerous place. Because we've heard a whole lot of messages. Probably if there was one message that we've heard over and over and over and over again at nauseum, it's been about God's got a promise for your life. He's got a purpose for your life. It's because every pastor is going, man, if there's one thing that I could get through to you, it's that God has a promise for your life. He's got a purpose on your life. He's got greater days ahead of you. Come on, it's the pep rally sermon. Everybody goes, woo! That was my response the first time I heard about God's promises. But after I've heard 7,000 messages about the promises of God, there's this thing about when we hear the same thing over and over again, we begin to develop a, a numbness to it. I liken it to when um, we, we first started having kids. When Landon was born, that kid made this, the, the slightest, eh, like we were fighting each other over who got to get to the room first to, to rescue our, our distraught child. Now, eight years later, three kids later, when the, th when the little one cries, I lock her in her bedroom and just let her have it out. Jesus, just deliver that demon in Jesus' name. Whatever's in her, come out in Jesus' name. And when we first heard about the promises of God, we responded the same way. When, you, when God first gave you a promise, it was the pep in your step. You couldn't wait to tell people about what God was going to do in and through your life. You couldn't wait. You couldn't wait to tell as many people, as, man, let me tell you about my prophecy. Let me, oh, I got a word from the Lord today. Like, we, we were ready. But now some of us are 10 years after that promise was made, 20 years after that promise was made, and all of a sudden there's no longer a pep in my step. Why? Because I'm beginning to doubt if he's actually ever going to do it. 
promises of God, I believe, are in a scary place. Not because they're not yes and amen. Not because that they, God isn't a man of his word. He's, he's not a man that he should lie. It's, it's not that reason. It's that the longer this has gone on without any sort of fulfillment or any sort of spark, if you will, when I begin to lose my vision, I begin to all of a sudden walk different, talk different. I've got a weariness about me. I don't operate with the same level of confidence that I did when I first got my word. Ooh, I got a word. And here's why. I said, God, why does that take place? Is it because we're tired of hearing it? He says, no, because you actually stopped saying it. And then you just hear about God's promises without you ever declaring God's promises. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 says this. It says, don't throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember that great, the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you'll continue to do God's will. Then... Then, 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 after you continue, after you continue, after you keep your confident trust in the Lord, then you will receive. Not that you may, that, that you might. Not some of you will and some of you won't. But then you will receive all that he has promised. Proverbs 29, 18 famously says this, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint or the people perish. That word literally means to be exposed, to have nothing left. I have nothing without God's promise and vision for my Confidence, 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 vision, vision. They go hand in hand. When I see, when I can see clearly, I, there's a confidence that I possess. That people say I'm foolish. People say, shouldn't you just give up? People say go a different direction. But no, I, when God has shown me something, I move with a confidence. I can see clearly. And if there's one thing in this sweaty room this morning, it's a quick weight loss plan for you today came into church this morning and both of our air conditioners went out so thanks for your patience there's one thing I think God wants to do this morning is he wants to restore your vision so that not like Isaac when your vision is gone you're left with making decisions based on what feels right what feels good rather what you know to be true and restoring vision so I want to end with this. Third closing. I want to end with this. I said, God, how? How do I restore my vision? All right, son, will you forgive? You fix your eyes. He says, you declare God's promises. Here's what I know about God's promises. God's promises, yes, they're yes and amen. But God's promises are both corporate and personal. Meaning that if I read God's word, I can read the promises of God for my life. The promises of God for my life is the same as the promises of God for yours. About him being my provider, my joy, my peace, my, the friend that sits closer than the brother, my ever-present help in my time of need, the one who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above anything you can ask, think, or begin to imagine. The one who is always with me, even if I make my bed in hell, Scripture says, there, there's nothing that can separate me from his love. The one who is all-loving, all-knowing, all-sufficient, whose forgiveness doesn't run out, whose love doesn't run out, who's, who's my grace, who's my peace, who's my comforter. These are God's promises of who he is going to be to all of us. Then there's personal promises. Things that God has said to you in a quiet place. Maybe said to you years ago, maybe as a young child, or maybe even just over these last few days of prayer. Maybe it's just at the beginning of the year, God made you a promise. So here's what I want you to do. Just It's the last thing we're going to do, I promise. I'm making you a promise now. Do me a favor, would you get out your cell phone? Or a pen and paper. If you need to grab a giving envelope, grab a giving envelope. If you don't have a device, handy to you. 
I just everybody in the room, don't worry, I'm not subscribing you to anything. I'm not asking you to text anything. It's nothing like that. But just get something where you can make a note. You can make a note. If you've got a screen in front of you, just open up your notes app. And just as the band plays, I want you to write down every promise that God has made you. Every promise that you can think of that God has made you. Now, you can write down scripture if you want. That kind of helps get the juices flowing. But things that God has promised you, about you, about his plan for your life, about his plan for your family, about his plan for your business, about his plan for your involvement in church, about whatever God has promised you, said to you. Just whatever comes to mind, just begin to write it down. Many as you can think of. Many as you can think of. Be as descriptive as you want to be. You're not sending these in. You're not texting these in. Turning these, This is between you and God. But as many promises as you can think of. If you can't think of a personal promise, start writing down the corporate ones and the promise. The personal ones will come, I promise. What has God promised you? What has God promised you? Just take a few moments. or spheres of influence that you would operate in and your life looks nothing like that arena and it looks like foolishness to man if anything I believe you more that God said that to you don't be embarrassed by the promises of God just keep writing just a couple of, I see a couple of you are still just thumbs of fury right now just two more two more minutes what has God promised you about that organization you're supposed to start God promised you about your health, about your parents. What promise did he make to you?
Now do me a favor. Just put that device in your hand or that pen and paper in your hand. Do me a favor. Would you stand to your feet? You can keep writing if you need to. Keep those thumbs moving. Thumbs of fury. See, our confidence comes back. Our vision realigns when we remind ourselves and we allow the Holy Spirit to remind us of what God has promised us. Putting back, once again, the promise didn't go anywhere, bringing it back to my line of sight. Bringing it back to what I can see. Letting it be that GPS that I'm seeing. It's starting to make sense of the destination I'm, I'm getting to, that God is leading me to. And just with those promises in your hand, the band's going to play it. They're going to play a little bit louder in just a moment. And I want you to, well, I, I'm going to leave this up to interpretation. I either want you to begin to declare out loud out of your mouth God's promises for your life. Maybe it's reading down your phone. God, you promised me that my marriage would be reconciled. You promised me that my business would be profitable. You promised me whatever it may be. I want you just to declare out of your mouth God's promises. Then afterwards, I want you to put your hand just symbolically, your hand on your device, your hand over your promises. And say, God, I know, I know you've promised me these things. And so my faith is aligned to the promises that you've made for my life. Would you do that? 